1: Welcome to the mentor TV podcast and Thrive with Patricia Falco-Becali. Welcome back to another episode of COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation here on mentor TV. Well, today I have a very special guest indeed. I'm extremely honored to welcome on the show, on the program today, Vera Vika Freiberger. You will know her as uh, the sixth president of Latvia, the first female and definitely one of those individuals that has moved the needles and helped to move the needles for this Baltic state, um, being there when it was included into the European Union as well as into NATO. Of course, Latvia also being a member of the United Nations. Now, there is so much, uh, Vyra, that I could really talk about introduce you to, I mean, you are a psychologist, have a PhD in psychology, you have been born in Latvia, then migrated to Germany, then migrated on to Morocco, and then really did your, most of your adult life until finishing your degree and starting your professional life in Canada as a clinical psychologist, just to give a little bit of a wrap up, Vera.
2: It's been an odyssey. I, I left my, my home in Riga when I was six years old and uh, I returned to head the Latvian Institute after taking early retirement from the university when I was 60.
1: It's interesting to see because when I look at your, your achievement, Vira, I don't know what is the most important thing that a person, a personality like you can really mentor and share because um, apart from having gone through this odyssey, you are really a a psychological uh, medical professional that was then basically put once back in your own home country to Latvia into a very responsible uh, position as the president of Latvia for two terms with an absolutely high uh, approval rating. Tell me about this experience and what you see right now also within our series COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation what you may have taken away from that experience? Would you still be in this position?
0: A refugee child uh, clearly goes through uh,
2: extremely uh, traumatic uh, experiences. It starts at the moment when, when your parents say, uh, we are leaving because the, the Red Army is marching uh, on the city. And um, we do not wish to live uh, under what my mother called a a system of lies and oppression. And we're simply Mm -hmm. fleeing west uh, as the front advances. Um, And uh, we left. Uh, We had very little time to pack. There was an opportunity uh, to to get transportation. We left three days before the Red Army marched in. And I was told that of the two dolls that I possessed, I had very few toys during the during the war. I had to take only one, and I had a choice between a, a very uh, old and uh, and worn out uh, cloth doll with a rubber head, uh, and a nice plastic doll who I thought was beautiful, Anna, uh, who had been given to me just just that uh, my last birthday, and. Uh, It was heart-wrenching, so you can imagine it sort of uh, encapsulates the sort of thing that adults must go through for me as a child of the few possessions that I had, being told that, well, yes, the teddy bear is, is sort of soft and worn out and you can have your teddy bear, but of the dolls, we can only take what we carry and you have to make a choice. Do you take Anna or Greta? And it was heartbreaking to leave Anna behind. Uh, And we had a, a cute little dog. I have a picture of him and a beautiful little Spitz dog. He had to be left behind, and then I have three bra- grandmothers, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, all sorts of aunts and uncles and, and cousins, and the thought of leaving it all behind was heart wrenching. So that's the beginning, and it continues, and of course uh, everything else, and it's it's really and then what it becomes step by step. And I, the only thing I can tell people who are in a crisis, be it a personal crisis. or or feeling oppressed by this worldwide epidemic and pandemic by now is that when things get really hard you concentrate on now on on the moment on the present moment Uh, if it's if it's a very difficult moment you cut time down into smaller chunks and say i will live for another minute or for another 15 minutes, or for another half hour. I will survive this. I will will take the next step. I'm worn out, I'm falling down, but I will take the next step, just one more step. And uh, somehow, uh, many people perish, of course. You have to realize that. Uh, There's not always a happy ending. But if you are to survive, you have to do things. Accept as they come concentrate on the moment and on survival in that moment and on keeping your your sense of self and, and integrity not falling into a panic because it doesn't help my mother used to tell me there were some people screaming when the bombs were coming down we were sitting and. Uh, in a shelter, <laughs> shelter. it was uh, just the, the basement where people kept their potatoes for the winter. And I was sitting on this sack of potatoes and there was another little girl there, my age, and, and she would uh, she would be screaming, Lieber Gott, Lieber Gott, uh, uh, save us, uh, you know, please don't let this bomb fall on our heads. And, and my mother would say, we Latvians don't scream like that. So you, you, even if you're scared, you're not allowed to scream. <laughs>
1: but that's very interesting because that gives a sense of uh, of urgency, but pride, and that you have your dignity. However, best that's right. right, and uh, and I took it very seriously. I was I was absolutely
0: scared. Um, I was terrified, uh, but I wasn't going to show it. I was going to be a proud Latvian who can take it all, you see. <laughs>
1: and I suppose that helped. Yeah. No, absolutely. What I what I think is very interesting, what you were mentioning, uh, starting with the jaws is that you had a sense of loss, but at the same time, um, you could take something along and still have a sense of hope that, that there is something else and, and do you think that the current zeitgeist is exactly what you were saying that people will have to learn to let go maybe of the old ways they were used to focus on the now but with that also being able to not only overcome crisis but create what the next day will bring the the, the future era will bring absolutely and I can tell you that uh,
0: from my experience as a child during the war uh, and uh, And the postwar period in a completely destroyed uh, Germany in the refugee camps there, um, with other people who'd lost uh, everything that was uh, near and dear to them, uh, and of course their possessions and and their food was uh, what there was 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 terrible, and there wasn 't enough of it, etc etc. Um, But the creativity that people manifested is simply astounding. And uh, I'm surprised that not not more books have been written about this aspect. But, But you see it in biographies of people. People have gone through this and when I remember their life. Uh, and I was, I was very proud of my parents, the, the way uh, my mother could, uh, uh, you know, out of three peas, she could make uh, a supper and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and how my dad, uh, we were in a camp where the snow was coming in, in a sort of um, barn, you see, with cracks I- in the walls, and there were a hundred people there in triple-level triple, triple level bunks, and the snow was coming to January, and the snow was coming in through the cracks. And he said, "People, let's look uh, in in whatever we're carrying. Is there some rag that you can sacrifice? Or some piece of your clothing that you can sacrifice? Even though there's so little that you took with you, do let us um, plug up these these cracks uh, between the planks mm-hmm. um, uh, so that this, at least the snow doesn't come in." And then he organized a, a sort of uh, a rota of. Uh, of who would, uh, there was a tiny little uh, <laughs> iron stove in the middle of this barn, uh, but in order to feed it, uh, he organized a brigade that uh, once would go out and look for wood, and then those who would chop it, and, and those who would take turns in, in feeding. the. the and I, Later on, I, I read the biography of uh, somebody who was <laughs> sleeping next to me on, a, we were not actually in bunks, but on sort of shells with dirty straw on them, and he, he happened to be lying next to me, and he, he remembered how he felt very proud when, when, my, when my stepfather, Edgars uh, told him as, as a boy of 11 or 12, uh, now you are going to participate, and you are going to um, help keep us warm, and so on. And uh, he didn't have a, a father. His mother was there with four boys all alone. And he felt very much encouraged. Uh, and uh, I guess uh, his sense of self uh, was uh, was sort of gratified by doing something useful, uh, by not being helpless. In other words, I think the worst thing is to uh, allow helplessness to wash over you, Um Uh, Because, as I say, even if it's a moment where bombs are falling, you can't stop them. Uh, What you can do is say, I'm not going to scream, I'm not going to panic. Uh, I'm I'm taking a deep breath and I'll survive until the next moment. But when it comes to changing situations, people's creativity wakes up. We have this marvelous, I think, uh, nature has truly provided us. Just think of of nature as, as a whole. Nature is forever filling every possible niche of survival, uh, creating new ecosystems, Um, And human beings, well, in many ways, we
1: are the crown of creation because we have consciousness. And and of course, you're making here the comparison between COVID-19 and the COVID-19 crisis um, and this pandemic and the war, because it just unplugged basically the entire society and still does so many parts of of the world from the normality. Things changed. uh, People have to react. People have to kind of plow through, as you were saying, also during the war, you had to get on, you had to make the most that really pulls out the creativity and uh, and then you had basically the father saying hey participate uh, you can actually change something in the current situation to make it better do you get a sense that this is happening right now with people especially in our societies be it in europe be it in the us also in the uk that they let the political authorities tell them what to do adhere to it and actually have the sense that they are participating in resolving the crisis?
0: On the whole, I would say that yes, with uh, with maybe a few notable exceptions, where uh, heads of state and government uh, did not always um, listen uh, to specialists uh, and, and scientists uh, and their opinions uh, before making pronouncements or taking decisions. But these are exceptions uh, where uh, I'm thinking of two Two large countries on the American continent, where the president says, "Oh, this is this is people are making a fuss of this. It's 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 we have flu every year, and uh, it's it's just going to pass, and it's not serious." Um, well, in, in many ways, uh, we were all taken short. Uh, the unpredictable, uh, by definition, uh, is is new. It, it's it happens uh, a curious coincidence. I was at a at a security conference. Um, last uh, November in in Paris, at the French Senate. And and in giving a concluding speech about uh, what Europe should do about its common security, it was in commemoration of the fall of the Berlin Wall and and the liberation of of the post-communist countries. But it was, I I, I said in my concluding speech that we, we, of course, we have to think of collaborative mechanisms that would make us ready for any kind of security threat. And that threat could be of the uh, conventional military kind, and heaven knows the poor Ukrainians uh, found out that the, the, when if we, some including me, thought those days are over when, uh, when a sovereign country gets invaded by a neighbor, but they're not over. So we have to be ready for everything, but I said we have to be ready for unexpected things that happen as a result of climate change. Um, And it doesn't matter whether it was man-made or otherwise, if if the uh, crisis hits, we have to have mechanisms of collaborating between us, because most crises will cross borders. And and I did at the time, last November, I said, we have to be ready for pandemics uh, by establishing... um, emergency reaction processes. And this is where, uh, well, the, the pandemic came sooner than, than anybody would expect. When the structure was established, yeah. That when some countries, for instance, reacted, oh, we're going to close our frontiers because uh, so far the the foci of, uh, of infection are elsewhere. Uh, but then uh, an example was quoted of uh, the Sweden sending uh, necessary equipment to northern Italy, and uh, for bureaucratic reasons, it wouldn't be let through France and uh, possibly some other countries on the way. Um, people from the Baltic countries who happened to have been abroad on business or on holiday or whatever, who wished to return uh, home uh, as the lockdown started, uh, were blocked. Uh, in 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 cars and other transport uh, means at the border of Poland and Poland said we're, we're closing our border and we're not letting you through. But these people were really not in danger of infecting anybody. Uh, if if they were uh, to be allowed to simply to you know to travel to, to pro- promise not to stop on the way simply travel right through and get back back uh, home again. These sort of decisions, you see, are the kind that. Uh, one should have in an armamentarium of emergency responses certain basic principles. Whatever the crisis, there are certain basic steps. Governments should talk to each other. Uh, health, you see, a pandemic is not under European uh, Union. Uh, sort of jurisdiction. Uh, but then Switzerland uh, <laughs> is right next uh, to European Union countries, and so is Norway. And, and uh, w- we're all neighbors, and, and these uh, viruses or, or many other things that might hit us, uh, they do not uh, uh, respect borders. So they don't respect borders. Don't do anything. And we have to think of how are we going to coordinate our response? So, what would you suggest? I would say that there should be, um, regionally, uh, and then, you know, at, uh, at the broader level, certainly for the European Union, as a union already they should have it, but for the whole continent, that, that there should be certain mechanisms, say, uh, a crisis is uh, compulsory for, for heads of state or, or government uh, to get in touch with each other. Uh, these Zoom conferences that are now becoming, for me, a daily event. Uh, um, Modern technology allows that. We don't have, the the meetings do not have to be organized. Uh, You you don't have to travel. Uh, Everybody can find uh, a slot uh, of of half an hour to an hour, even if it's at midnight. Uh, If it's a crisis, I think heads of state will be ready, uh, or heads of government will be ready to talk to each other. Um, and uh, if you like a clearinghouse, there should be a clearinghouse of it. it is in my country, we are proposing or we are doing this, that and the other. How is it going to affect you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it was slow in starting, of course. It, it was very ad hoc. Um, uh, one cannot predict everything. I admit that no, by definition, by definition. And by but nature, by nature as well, it, you know, <laughs> you, you have it, to be like, <laughs> Uh, certain sort of channels, channels of communication and, and coordination. This is what I would like to see being one one of the major outcomes of this crisis. There will be others
1: alas, there will be. Yeah, I think it is really, really um, important what you were saying in terms of where well, you have to have a certain process a process where all these countries, at least see the European as a block, uh, kind of get together and have a process how to respond together in coordination that not when, you know, one European country member is trying to cross another European country, they will be blocked. I want to link in here also your experience as a psychologist, Vira, because I get the feeling if there is not a process, a um, regulation, a structure that we can hold on to consciously, our fear will take over. And we do unrational decisions, we make unrational decisions, uh, which then are harmful for the entirety and, and the sense of community as such. People on the whole have been uh, quite docile, I might say.
0: Uh, when uh, it's, uh, we have been recently bemoaning for the last, I don't know, five years at least, uh, an increasing lack of, confidence uh, in our leaders. Um, my feeling is that surely uh, the leaders of today, uh, from one day to another, all of a sudden became more incompetent or more dishonest or, or more uh, corruptible or whatever than the ones from uh, year before or five years before or ten years before. Human nature, you know, does not change so fast. And after all, we do have on our continent. We are lucky to have uh, the opportunity to elect our leaders, and it's our own fault if it then turns out that we do not trust them. Um, it's it's a it's a mutual mutual exchange, and all of a sudden, people realize you cannot um, in a community that is not just your home, your street, your village. Your city, your country, or even your continent, because this is cross continents, you cannot react adequately without knowing what happens elsewhere. So, the news media, first of all, took a huge importance. Everybody was glued to the news, but we needed the news and information to know what is happening. And the fact that governments did take over and said, well, we have a crisis. Uh, we have come together, we have discussed what we're going to do, we have uh, listened, and this is important, they would say we have listened to experts in other countries as well, and the World Health Organization and and international bodies that that have something uh, significant and meaningful to say, and this is what we propose. And even though the details varied from one country to another, citizens on the whole were remarkably Docile, but in a positive sense, disciplined, I would say, is a better word. They were disciplined. They understood that in order to protect themselves and their families, uh, it is important to take certain measures that are meant to protect others. But it's a mutual thing. If I do the right thing, I protect me, myself, my family and my neighbors. And they, in turn, if they follow the rules, they protect themselves, but they protect me as well. And there's a sense of mutuality and being in it together, which I have found uh, rather touching. We are frequently, um, I think, reproached in our day and age of being extremely narcissistic and on ourselves. Um, um, But uh, I think the the crisis showed how people have that uh, deep fount of... of, uh, Community, well, community sense and a, yeah. a love of humanity, a, a sense of brotherhood with
1: one's fellow man. And this this has come through very clearly. Well, this is, this is wonderful that you're saying it because there's so many conflicting anecdotes one could pull out, proving exactly that point and also proving the other. And you, men- you were mentioning a couple of leaders on the other side of the Atlantic, one slightly to the north and the other one slightly to the south. I know I'm taking a wild guess here. Um, but let me get, uh, get back to the issue of consistency in messaging as well as, you know, being respected as, and trusted as political leaders. What do you think are the main, the main features in a crisis that actually instill in me that I have, you know, um, a chancellor, um, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, as my leader having a German passport with an immigrant background myself, um, that she would instill really the trust, for example, or the distrust in me that I would follow what she says or not? We have to distinguish two things.
0: Popularity is one thing and trust is another. Um, And basically, if people have elected a certain person to a high office again and again, ipso facto, it is proof that a sufficient number of her or his fellow citizens do trust that person. And you see, our democracies are postulated on the delegation of authority. Uh, We have have this ability to choose who is going to be ruling over us, if ruling is the word, it's not quite the word, governing the community, governing the the state uh, as a... As an entity where we are all participants, and by by voting and by choosing somebody, we are participating in it. And there's a feedback. There's a feedback loop. Uh, citizens too often forget that uh, if they are so unhappy with somebody, by the next time they they vote them out of office, and it happens all the time. And besides, there are limits, for instance, for presidents. There are many countries, most countries. Uh, no, many countries, have (laughs) limits on how many terms a president can have, etc., etc. And uh, we must have this trust. Uh, If we live in communities, uh, if we live in a civilized world, it's a world that is rule-governed. It's rule-governed in our daily uh, intercourse. Today, uh, when you go uh, shopping for uh, something in a drugstore in or in a, in a supermarket for food, um, it is required that you keep distance, that you wear a mask, and that you wear some gloves. Uh, this is the, the common discipline. Other days, uh, I mean, <laughs> we have the rules that are in, in the... Um, in the law books of each country uh, and which decide what is acceptable behavior and, and what, is a, uh, what is an antisocial act, what is hooliganism, what is a crime, what is a, what is a serious crime, etc., etc., uh, we we live in a rule governed world. Uh, we hope that the international community is going to become a rule governed world. I'm part of uh, many organizations. <laughs> for for two terms, I, I, I led the World Leadership Alliance, the Club de Madrid, with about 110 former heads of state and, governor, uh, and uh, government, and government. And we we are continuously, and my successor Daniel uh, Türk is is continuing this uh, promotion of uh, multilateral responsibility uh, in a rule-governed world, Um, because precisely what democracy achieves in a democratic state, we would like to see develop gradually, albeit, but develop worldwide.
1: Yeah, and I think um, that is something that I would like to, to ask you about is democracy, you just hit it on the head. And, and when I look at, um, we live in a de- democratic system, we are uh, allowed and proud to live in a democratic system where we have freedom of choice of our leaders, fair enough, we got that. However, uh, democracy also is a responsibility. You know, if you are a, democr- a democratic state, then you have a responsibility as a participant to, you know, make that choice and perhaps stand by that choice or even change it. And I wonder, looking at this protest uh, in Germany, I mean, Europe-wide, I'm just focusing on Europe right now simply because we're sitting in the middle of it, where you see these protesters uh, protesting against the lockdown, saying this is actually uh, cutting their democratic rights, cutting their uh, free freedom of speech, the freedom of movement, and, and uh, they're protesting against it, even though the lockdowns is good for the greater good. How does that make sense? Well, I must say that Europeans,
0: uh, as I would say, as a, as, a, as a large continent-wide collectivity, seem to be rather fond of protesting. I spent many years of my life in Canada and one had rather uh, less of that sort of thing. Uh, and it seems to me that Canada was got along <laughs> just as well <laughs> uh, without so many protests, not that they were forbidden or anything. Uh, it's it simply, and of course there, there were demonstrations and manifestations at various times. Uh, I participated in, in some of them myself, uh, but um, uh, in Europe, um, lately, there seems to be a fashion for, for going out in the streets. And uh, this is understandable in countries where you have, uh, well, as was the case with the Orange Revolution uh, in, uh, in Ukraine, when I happened to be in office and I happened to, to be there when, when it happened also. Um, when there, a visible injustice is being perpetuated at the political level, Uh, it's for the responsible citizen and the the democratically-minded one, then it becomes practically a duty to go out and protest. The question is, um, when does it become uh, something that would need more thought, reflection and preparation before being done? Well, we have that privilege. We do have that privilege, and that is when people talk about the right to express themselves. Well, of course they have the right to express themselves. Uh, if they feel constrained, they are constrained, and they wish to protest, it is their it is their fundamental right to do so, as long as they keep two meters distance and keep their on. You see, because that otherwise they are imperiling uh, my health, my neighbor's health, or the person next to them.
1: But otherwise, it's a perfect right. Yeah, but populism creeps into it. I mean, that is a part of the discussion where you see, well, you know, there are those people that are really thinking that democracy is being, uh, at the moment, uh, put on the back burner. But there's a lot of I don't think so at all. I think this is a misconception, you see. I think uh, we need debates
0: about it. Uh, uh, What does it mean, your your democratic freedoms? Can you, uh, I mean... I would like to drive at 250 kilometers an hour, you see. Uh, I like speed. Uh, Am I allowed to do that in Germany? I don't know. Is there a limit at all or not? They're
1: starting to clamp down, even the Germans, yes.
0: Even the Germans, you see. But uh, in Canada and in the States and and in my country, uh, uh, well, uh, you approach, uh, for instance, uh, uh, some sort of uh, village or or town. Absolutely, you must cut down on your speed uh, because you you run over. Uh, otherwise, you risk running over not just cats and dogs uh, roaming about, but uh, but children and, and and anybody whatsoever. Again, it's a matter of your civic responsibility. Resti- we live in a world. I mean, Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher, was born in Riga. We we are proud to say, but spent his life at Oxford. Um, he makes this distinction, uh, and it's, it goes back to the ancient Greece. My liberties, my freedom of action stops where yours start. And we have to, in civilized society, the whole game is how to balance
1: yours yes. against mine. Yes, be, being empathetic. The and individual
0: empathetic. against the collectivity. It's yes. a delicate balance. Depending on what it's about, it, the balance, the line will not be drawn in exactly the same place. But that, that dialectics between the two uh, is constantly there and we have to be, I think, rationally aware of it, that these are rational decisions that, that we have to take. We cannot let just simply our emotions dictate things, yeah. not at that level. We let emotions dictate us in our private life and in and, our know, links to nature and what have you. Poetry, if you like. But not, not when you say driving on the street or living in a
1: civil society that makes you civil actually you know in this dialectic that you have you have referred to before Vyra I, I just wonder you know that is very much also cultural driven as you were saying early on you know Europe seems to have developed the fashion of going on the streets for whatever whether it's a bit of gilets jaune lately in France or, or demonstrations across the board and then us in, in Canada that is not really that common so again there uh, you know that balance that, that empathetic balance is very much tinted by whatever culture you are living in growing up in and allowed to move in so it, it is tough and i wonder just to, to move it on and to see uh Vira, how how you think this entire pandemic is going to perhaps map out in terms of this even cultural sensitivity or when it comes to okay my freedom stops where um where your freedom basically starts and and there is kind of this fine line
0: the biggest uh, challenge is going to be the estimation of risks uh, uh, as, a, as against gains. Uh, the whole process of limiting our freedom of movement has been based uh, on, a, on an understanding. And this understanding is imperfect. It is incomplete. Uh, when we are faced with a new virus, a new pathogen, the, uh, the accumulated wisdom on it uh, is not necessarily applicable. Everything else we knew about viruses until now is useful, but if it's a new virus and uh, has a different pattern uh, of spreading and of infection and so on, uh, and, and how the carriers uh, can transmit it and so on, this is, we have to learn as we're living it And this learning process is a burden. It's a burden and one has to take risks. The risks that the countries took when they uh, went in for the lockdown was to limit the number of preventable deaths uh, and weigh this against the absolutely predictable economic losses that would follow from a cessation of public activities, from a limitation of movement uh, and and from a limitation of gathering more than X number of people in the same place. Here again, it's a balance. Uh, We must have people here, now that in our northern hemisphere it's a spring, there must be people in the countryside who go out, and if it's needed for them to be two or three together, they have to do it, or else we are all going to starve before we die of the coronavirus. doctors have to be uh, in the front lines not just for those uh, infected with a new pathogen uh, but oncological uh, infectious and very chronic diseases have not disappeared uh, hospitals still need to take care uh, of other diseases as well so that the risk we cannot prevent the if you like establish A completely safe world. It's impossible. Uh, There will always be risks. Mm -hmm. And uh, any step we take to protect ourselves has a probability attached to it. We have probabilistically reduced the number of preventable deaths by taking all these measures. This is clear from all the curves, from all the statistics. It has been demonstrated. The economic curves, that show the downturn in economics, of course, are the other side of that medal, And uh, this is why most governments now are very cautiously, step by step, trying to backpedal, as it were.
1: In other words, loosen up the restraints. There is the debate in Germany right now, in Thuringia, where Bodo Ramelow, who is a from the linker, and he is basically the state head of Thüringen and he's very much for this approach. Listen, we don't need to be co- uh, cohesive in our lockdown or opening up all through Germany. Never mind, never mind, Europe, Vera. But you know, we had so and so many parts of our land that has had no infection over the last three weeks. Why should we wear masks? Why should we do this and that and the other? Which on a federation, a federational level, perhaps would be making sense generally speaking. So he's very much for that approach, but he gets a lot of backlash from the other uh, lender saying, no, not at all. Um, it shouldn't be that way or it is maybe too difficult to manage. Is it confusing? I mean, I'm seeing, thinking that, okay, both sides have, have their positives and their yeah. negatives. Where do you stand?
0: I agree. I think both of them are right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, uh, if you have a, a, a definite region, uh, where uh, the, um, if you like, the the local uh, population is stable, uh, not given uh, to travelling a great deal, and this this can be measured statistically, um, and has been mercifully spared the ravages of this of this pandemic so far, uh, then yes, uh, I think they're quite justified in saying, well, what have we done so far? Uh, to, to prevent uh, the disease from spreading. Uh, let us see uh, to what extent uh, this can be truly said to have been responsible for the good result or is there something that we can loosen up? Uh, we have had, we have been blessed in, in Latvia in having few, I mean relatively few to the population of people infected and also mercifully uh, few fatalities. But the price has been high because we, we, we went, since March we went into complete lockdown. And there's a partial lockdown still um, going on until 9th of June and then things will be considered and so on. Yeah. Um, so different countries do take different concrete steps and why not different regions? Uh, absolutely. I think that weighing all the pros and the contras and the... Uh, Conditions on the ground, the requirements on the ground, the measures taken, etc. Local authorities, local authorities, um, I think um, need to have a certain amount of latitude in what they do. But here I, I go back to my very earliest point: coordination with others. Because, well, uh, this virus um will not necessarily stop at the at the border of Thuringia. Um <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah. flying over the border, uh etc, et, cetera, et cetera. We we have to keep that in mind as well.
1: Yeah. And uh, so so to to kind of conclude this conversation about uh, COVID nineteen, what would you say are, if you can think of it, the, the, the three main things that will change for Everybody, it doesn't matter in what country or what continent we're living. Um, you know, I don't want to, I, I call it the post-COVID-19 era because there might not be a post-COVID-19 full stop, but just that era after. What do you think the three main things will, will be changing in the long run? I think
0: it would be pretentious of me to try and, and uh, envision the, the future. All of, us, all of us would like to do that. Uh, so would I. Uh, but I fear uh, not to be gifted with the gift of prophecy. And, um, and I see, as always, there are positive and negative trends uh, taking place. Our hope, and my hope is uh, that the sense of resilience that we have established in this crisis and it is there uh, it is uh, it is wide worldwide the sense of uh, solidarity with others the need for discipline the need for forth uh, thought and and uh, clarity in our thinking uh, taking uh, into account and listening to experts, but understanding that they're not—they're not prophets either, and they do not have perfect knowledge either. Understanding that we have to weigh probabilities, not certainties, that we have to take certain risks to survive. Everything in nature, every day, is taking a risk to survive, and so so do we as, as human beings. So I would—I would like to see that people are, in many ways, that they become more courageous. You see. Uh, and saying, well, we have been able to react. We have been able to survive. As in any crisis and any malheur, uh, or as, as in a war, uh, there are the fallen. Uh, there are losses. Uh, there is grieving. Um, but there's also uh, a continuance of life. And the sense that, yes, uh, we as a species, actually, as, as humankind... Um, hopefully have enough resilience uh, to practically in our daily lives to react in a humane uh, and and human manner. But many have said that as as this sort of interruption of your daily routine happens, why not take advantage to indeed uh, think about, uh, as it were, cultivating your soul uh, as well as, as cultivating your garden or, or, or your profession. Um, I hear many voices of people encouraging us to do that. And I would say that the ability sometimes to be away from the rat race, I am personally rather relieved not to have to do uh, all the traveling that I have been doing for the last years. Uh, I'm quite enjoying springtime in in the country and and yes I'm enjoying the communion with nature I feel feel sort of vivified by it and in many ways I think about uh, returning to the idea of spiritual practices let us not grieve about not being able to do it in groups but I think spiritual practices are at everybody's disposal every day of our lives so let's go to it
1: Wonderful. Vera, Vika, Freiberger, thank you so much for joining us here on Mentorate TV. The insight, the wisdom, your experience is absolutely unique. And I think you do give a lot of hope and guidance. And what I love is the confidence you can instill in, in a person themselves to, to be courageous, be resilient, look back, learn, and then you know plow on with it. The crisis will be managed and there will be a good outcome, Um, coordination, communication being the key there. Vera, thank you You so much. Enjoy life. Enjoy every day and every moment of your life. I'm Victoria Moran.